Well, I mean, that's why the book is called Comedy, Sex, God. It's the three things that have been most important in my life. And sexuality was such a, a shameful thing. And if I'm honest, there's still some of that kicking around in there. That's still part of the psychology that I have to sort of overcome. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me on the art of humanity. Welcome back to those who have been listening for a while. I started this podcast back in 2015, and obviously it's something that I love doing and I love connecting with you all. And also welcome to those who may be listening for the very first time. I'm an intuitive business coach, marketing mentor, podcast coach, yoga teacher. Throughout all of these titles, I always come back to appreciating the new understandings of what it means to be human. I'm thrilled to share the people and the stories that resonate with my journey throughout this podcast. It's my art. Shout out to everyone diving deep. You are appreciated. And this is the time to empower yourself. We're in a mass awakening happening on this planet right now. If you join me in seasons one through five, you should know the show has evolved from Jeff Pulver's inaugural episode to Seth Godin's episode. One of the standout episodes from last season is episode 54 with Jim Rutt on building a better society, which is extremely prescient for these times. We're evolving beyond the illusions of Game A, which is the obsession with materialism, appearances, job titles, and transitioning into Game B, focusing on our core values of connection, freedom, and true community. Game B is what's next in our human evolution. It allows us to be more intentional with how we move through the world. Now, I want to bring you something that has helped me as a highly sensitive person and entrepreneur who spends a lot of time on screens, blue light blocking glasses. Did you know that artificial light is destroying our melatonin sleep and health? If you're interested in learning more, you'll want to tune into next week's episode where I talk with Dr. Jack Cruz about this very topic and how blue light blocking glasses can help. I've been using blue blocking glasses from Raw Optics for the past few months, and I've noticed a huge difference in my sleep. After my nightly bath, I'll put them on before I look at any screens before bed. I try not to look at any screens throughout the night, but if I need to glance at my phone, I absolutely put them on because the raw optics lenses have been proven to specifically target the harmful frequencies emitted by phones, computers, screens, and LED lights. You may have seen clear lens blue blockers, sometimes called computer glasses. Unfortunately, these do not block the same specific dangerous frequencies of light emitted from screens or lights that raw optics do and are simply a marketing gimmick. The most important function of artificial light glasses is my favorite topic, to protect sleep because artificial light destroys our melatonin level, sleep quality, and overall health. While other brands are only focused on selling lenses that are as clear as possible, Raw Optics offers night lenses that block all blue and green light wavelengths in order to protect your eyes, sleep, and health. I love Raw Optics because they put the most effective lens technology into the most attractive frame styles to date. It does take a bit of time to get used to the lenses, but I promise it's worth it. To get 10% off Raw Optics glasses, go to rawoptics.com and enter the code ART at checkout. You can also get there by checking out the biohacking section of my store at artofhumanity.io store. It was so amazing to see this review come in from Left Handed Lady. She writes, Jessica Ann is a dancing flower. She brings on high caliber guests that get nice and raw, and the spark that she and each guest ignites together will get you even more excited about being human. Thank you, left-handed lady, for this review. If you like this podcast, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pod would mean the world to me. It only takes a few seconds. So if you could go over right now to Apple and leave a review, I'll maybe even give you a shout-out or shout-out, however you want to say it, in my next episode. This season is all about uncertainty. I have a deep connection with almost all of my guests, and Pete Holmes is no different. I have been following his work for some time, from his show Crashing on HBO to his comedy specials 
to getting the chance to meet him in person after his book reading at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco in June of last year. We both have one of the same teachers, Baba Ramdas, who we discuss at the very end of this episode with a unique twist and something that probably only a comedian like Pete Holmes can get away with. You'll have to listen to the end of the show to know what I'm talking about. In this interview, we do as Ramdas says, we walk each other home. We discuss some of the poetic moments of his book, Comedy Sex God, in which he describes his hilarious experiences that happened on his path of awakening. Now, here's this week's episode. To get all of the links and show notes, go to artofhumanity.io slash episodes. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. Today, I'm so excited to have my favorite living comedian with me on today's show, Pete Holmes. Pete is a comedian, actor, writer, producer, television host, spiritual seeker, and podcast host. His wildly popular podcast, You Made It Weird, is a comedic exploration of the meaning of life with guests ranging from Deepak Chopra and Elizabeth Gilbert to Seth Rogen and Gary Shanlin. Pete also created and starred in the semi-autobiographical HBO show Crashing, which he executive produced alongside Judd Apatow. An accomplished stand-up with three-hour-long television specials and in numerous late-night appearances, he tours regularly when we're not in a pandemic, to sold-out crowds. Pete, thanks so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Thank you very much. That sounds like an intro from another life, right? (laughs) Right? I know. Normally, I'd say, let's get into it, but let's talk about it. I mean, let's get it out of the way. How have you been holding up during this interesting time that we're in, straight out of a science fiction movie? (laughs) Yeah, it is straight out of a science fiction movie. I I sort of have to downplay how much I like it because I know so many people are, are suffering, you know, medical community is working so hard. Obviously, there are people who are sick. Um, There are people that live in small apartments in San Francisco, Manhattan, or wherever they might be. There are people that struggle with addiction that are struggling in this time. There's just so much pain. So I feel very conflicted about saying that my personal, small, isolated experience of this has been mostly positive. That's not to say that it hasn't been difficult, as you know, uh, and it sounds like we share this in common. I, I like doing inner work. And I consider uh, something like this to be an opportunity to kind of go deep and have a lot of, sometimes it's painful stuff come up that you haven't dealt with or psychological stuff or spiritual stuff. And things are quiet enough that I can sort of hear that. And, And I have a baby and I have a wife and we take care of the baby all day. So it sort of feels like Little House on the Prairie. There's something very basic and simple. If we had butter, we would churn it. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's very, very slow. And the big epiphany for me is is that I am an introverted extrovert. I play an extrovert <laughs> in life, mm-hmm. but really, mm-hmm. I really figuring out that I am deeply introverted. Isn't that weird? Yeah. It's like when you realize that your daily life is considered quarantine. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, uh, this is my life on a normal basis. So. Yeah, the life of a comedian isn't that different from a quarantine <laughs> existence. <laughs> like, I, I'm not really missing. There's no real set routine in my life that was disrupted. I'm not touring and I'm not doing stand-up. And that has its own sort of, that takes a toll on you. Because there is a, a release and, a, and an expression in doing totally. that. Yeah, it's it's like that rush that you get at the end of stand-up, I'm sure you're craving that. So how are you finding that ecstasy, that, you know, that experience, that adrenaline rush that you get from doing comedy shows? Are you finding that in other things? Yeah, I do find it in other things. You know, I'm I'm 41. I turned 41 uh, a couple weeks ago and Happy this, birthday. Thank you very much. It You're was, an Aries. I am an Aries. It was a great birthday, actually. I really loved it, even though we were in quarantine. But it's interesting. I've sort of had to reconsider my stand-up compulsion because I am doing really well without it. Stand-ups, that doesn't mean I'm not going to keep doing stand-up. I am looking forward to doing it. But I'm sort of proud of myself that I'm not like... Because what happens is you start to vanish. You know what I mean? You start to disappear. But Mm -hmm. I know this is sort of a spiritual podcast. And yeah, uh, I think let's get into it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get right into it. You have to ask yourself, what is disappearing? And and it it really is a story 
of who you think you are and who you want people to think you are. And, mm-hmm. and we already talked about how that's not entirely true. Like I tell a story that I'm an extrovert that I enjoy, you know, getting up. I do. I, you know, an introvert can have extroverted qualities, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm the same. I'm an ambivert. I like to say ambivert because it's kind of the best of both worlds. What is that? <laughs> it's an introvert and an extrovert. You're like kind of in oh, okay. between. Maybe I'm an yeah. ambivert. But, you know, like when I was in my 20s doing stand-up, if I started to vanish, that was one of the worst feelings in the world. I, I just really didn't like that sensation. And now I, I, I'm i finding it easier to sort of lay that down and surrender it, especially when we know, you know, there'll be a time when this is done and, and we'll do stand-up again, I hope, so we can resume. Yeah. But I'm wondering how I'm going to resume. There's part of me that's like, oh, that's interesting. I, I don't need to do it as often as I thought because there's something sort of unnatural in my experience that I, I catch myself saving my energy for when I'm on stage, like I'll be with people and I'll have a nice conversation with them or whatever. But there's always part of me that's holding back because I'm like, it's my job to communicate and to be with people. So I save a reserve. And that's not really the most natural thing to do to commoditize your sharing with other people, your relationships. I've done that for so long that it started to feel normal. But now I'm, I'm one of the breakthroughs that I think I've had is like, if I'm so busy that I'm not necessarily a great friend to all my friends or whatever, then that's that's not good. Like we were sort of talking about it. It's like on your deathbed, I, I don't think we're going to be talking about how many albums we put out or how many specials we had. We'll be thinking about our friends and our loved ones. So if I'm working so much that I'm not really available or I'm saving it for the stage. You know, that's that's a normal thing for comedians to say, like save mm-hmm. it for the stage. I'd like to find a new balance when life comes back. Yeah, I totally hear you. And I think a lot of what the world is experiencing, you mentioned it earlier, is like the inner work. And it's an opportunity for people who may have not done inner work and mm-hmm. going through our shadows to really get quiet enough to hear the shadows in our souls, like for lack of a better word, like the demons that we all have, (laughs) you know, and we're all craving so much more sustenance during these times. And your book is just that it's bright and deeply philosophical. And it's written for just about everyone, atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, and it mirrors my own journey in so many ways. I'm not Christian, by the way. I, um, For the record, I'm a Jewish girl from Jersey who got kicked out of Hebrew school. Hmm. <laughs> but um, it just goes to show that the awakening process that you write about in your book is universal. Yeah. And your book is just, I love it. It's called Comedy, Sex, God. And it's not a book of answers, but rather about how you can quiet this analytical mind to access self-love and presence. Mm-hmm. I laughed out loud so many times during this book. I mean, the awakening process is freaking hilarious. <laughs> and it's also excruciatingly painful at times, too. But it made me laugh. And in particular, when I got to the part of your book where you share your experience of this presence, for which there are often no words. Like when we go in and do this deep inner work and we get rid of those demons, we can get into this like deep like place of silence. And you wrote about it. Mm-hmm. And you wrote, I felt like Kermit turning my head and seeing Jim Henson for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that made it. Sometimes, you know, I, I know I thought that, but I'm like, did I put that in the book? I'm glad that's in the book. That's great. Oh my gosh, it's freaking hilarious. And you Thank nailed you. this experience of writing about like what's quote unquote running the show. It's like we're puppets on strings in these meat suits. Yeah. And I know you like to sauna as a way to not feel like you're in a meat suit, to not feel like you're Kermit. <laughs> but yeah. some days we are just Kermit. And our monkey minds, or rather, our our froggy minds. So, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so true. let's yeah. So let's start with like the presence of right now. Do you feel like Kermit, or are you able to be the higher picture perspective of Jim Henson most days? Yeah, I, I feel it's much much easier when I'm not being asked to perform, and that sounds like such a cheap way of saying interact. But sometimes, as someone who has introverted qualities. I do feel like when I see people, for example, at a party that I'm being asked to like bring out my Kermit, like that's what they want. (laughs) And really the issue there is like, I'm afraid they won't love, not my true self, my true self being like your soul or your awareness, but like the real full picture of me, 
like a lot of people think I have to show the best version of myself. I'm sort of mixing or complicating the metaphor. The metaphor in the book is, is that you're really awareness, that you are pure awareness. And I can see that in my baby. My baby doesn't really know that she's a girl. She doesn't know that she's white. She doesn't know that she's a Californian. She doesn't know that she's an American. She doesn't know anything about her parents other than we're these like two giants that sort of like feed her and clothe her. So she has so much less story to tell. My homeboy, Richie Rohr, talks about it, that usually lasts about seven years, which is why the Catholics, I'm not Catholic, but that's why the Catholics do the first communion at seven is because by that point, you've usually forgotten who you really are. But he also says that that explains our fascination with babies. Babies don't know, they don't have their puppet sewn yet. They just are freedom and light and awareness. And this is why even like the most deeply non-spiritual person in the world probably gets a charge or at least a feeling of connection and life from hanging out with a baby. So mm -hmm. when I have less peat to sell or trot around, I spend so much more time in my soul. And that's that's a huge part of why I'm enjoying this. One of the major disruptions, it's, it's a shame that we all sort of have to do it, uh, is things in the calendar. And that's how mm -hmm. I look at this quarantine is I'm like, it's I go to bed and I don't look at my calendar. <laughs> I, I And if I do have something like this, I plan it for like 1.30. I know I'll be up and I'll have had a chance to like look at my calendar by then, but I don't have to like prepare for anything the next day. So totally. Oh, I think we're wired the same way. Like if I have anything scheduled before noon, like I, I have a hard time sleeping the night before. <laughs> yeah, it stinks. It stinks. That's, that's so much of my life. I know that that gives me these moments. You asked how I get the rush from stand up. I get it from, you know, I, I pitched a script yesterday and it went really well. And I hung up and I was like, wow, there, there's an upside to to playing your Kermit and being like a, a bright, shiny Kermit. You know what I mean? Being an impressive Kermit. Does, yeah. <laughs> you feel proud of yourself. You feel good. You feel useful. You feel totally. culturally valuable. And I don't want to put that down. But when I have a day of nothing, that's when you start to vanish because there's no one there to mirror back to you who you are. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no one to tell you that you're valuable because you made money or you sold something or you made a crowd laugh or you were a hit at a party or you, whatever, you made a great meal for your friends. You just sort of start to vanish because you're not getting that mirror experience. But when you're in that place, it's a real opportunity to go like, well, if I vanished and I'm still here, then who, as Ramdas said, who's manning the store? What's left? And what's mm -hmm. left is your awareness. Is your, you know, the Christians would say your soul. So my mantra for the quarantine and, and just even when I'm not in quarantine, uh, you know, before and after this is always just this. That's something I got from Richard Rohr as well. I repeat mm -hmm. it to myself all the time. I'll be feeding Leela and I'll start catching myself. I'm like, well, after this is bath time and then we'll read some books and then I put her down. And then if she goes to bed around 830, Val and I will get a couple hours. You know, you start planning out your evening the way that we used to sort of live every day. And you just have to disrupt that and say, just this, just this, just this. And mm -hmm. it drops your anchor into the present and you, your anxiety goes away. You, you, yeah. you surrender it. This is why every major religion seems to have some concept of surrender and we're all being forced to do that. So if you lean into it, I do think there's some, uh, some good pearls in there. Absolutely. I love that you can drop your anchor into the present. And, you know, there is this kind of delicate dance that we all do of wearing, you know, these Kermit puppets, because I feel like it's almost not possible to, at least for me in my experience, I don't know if this is the same for you, but there was like this feeling of like this gnawing feeling before I wrote my first book and before I got like, quote unquote, mildly like, I don't even want to refer to the word like successful because success is defined in so many different ways for people. But there's always this gnawing at me that like I could not drop in because my ego was running the show. It was yeah. like, I need to be doing things. I need to be here. I need to be there. But it was only after I achieved a certain level of quote unquote success mm -hmm. that I could say like, oh, wait, that didn't make me feel any better. Like what I got what I always wanted and that doesn't make me feel 
any happier yeah. or any more successful. And it's like once you reach those milestones and you can check that off your box, like, you know, I ran the marathon. I got the graduate degree. I did this. I did that. And you start checking them off your box. You check you check them off. Then you realize, wait, like this is life. Yeah. This isn't a, you know, a fake show. This is we only have this one life. So I feel like I guess my question to you is, is it possible to dip into surrender if you haven't yet achieved a level of success in success in quotes? <laughs> Jessica, I, I love that question. I, I think I think it's a, a mistake to not play the game. You know what I mean? It's sort of how you play the game. And playing the game draws into question how you're playing the game. When I was in my 20s, it was just about, you know, my next success finding the next achievement. I had all these goals and you start meeting them and and then you realize that you're still there. And and like we were saying before, that sort of begs the question, well, what was the constant? All these things have changed. Pete used to be a fundamentalist Christian. Pete used to be a Republican, whatever Pete used to be. And now (laughs) Pete's all these different things. So what didn't change? If something can be changed, it's not really that interesting. (laughs) If there's Mm -hmm. something that's constant and real, that's worth your attention. Now, but to answer your, your question that I love is I found a couple quotes come to mind. Jim Carrey said, I wish everybody could have their become rich and famous so they could see that it's not the answer. I, I, <laughs> I think love that's that. a great quote. And mm-hmm. Ram Dass also said, it, what's interesting is when you find out you have to experiment if meeting your needs makes you any happier than not meeting your needs or maybe not your basic needs, but your goals, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was really, really important, and I feel really, really lucky uh, and privileged and uh, to have been able to have the luxury of meeting my goals and then realizing that I was still there and that the fundamental problem of finding a way to feel at home in the universe uh, remained. I, and I do wish everybody that same type of success if that's what they're after because it's really nice <laughs> to, yeah. to to tick boxes but it is it's a different level of surrender that you can really only access once you check off those boxes you can well, it it's a, like a sigh of relief you know it, it helped me relax for sure yeah i had the the luxury of you know not worrying about my basic needs and then a lot of the spiritual stuff started happening. I mean, the first time I, I took mushrooms was when I was doing stand up at a music festival. And, you know, I had a day <laughs> off, you know, like my shows were on like, let's say Thursday and Saturday. So I had this Friday to just like hang out with other comedians. And somebody was like, you should take mushrooms. Like that was a privileged thing. Like I, I, that is a privileged thing. And mm-hmm. the lifestyle in general, you know, when I'm touring or whatever, I do have a lot of free hours in the day to do this work. Yeah, amen. That's a beautiful thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's not easy either. So I commend you on that. Well, the other thing that's actually where I was going was there's so much suffering involved in stand up that, like, it does sort of, it is sort of like that sandpaper that Ram Dass talks about. There's a lot of pain involved in stand up. It's, It's fun, and I do it to list the things that I've done and to think about how fortunate I've been. But uh, there was also, you know, being so anxious before a show that you're dry heaving or ruining mm-hmm. holidays or losing friends. You you could even say that my first marriage certainly ended in part because that I was so driven and so like into my my silly career. It's not silly, but it is what it is. Um, so there's a price. You put all these things on the altar and you end up killing them. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't just a, a cakewalk. But those things, my divorce, my failures in stand-up, my failures in show business, my failures interpersonally, those ended up being the great teachers, which I know everybody says, but it's really, really true. You start realizing, that's why I have an appreciation for the quarantine. You start learning to say thank you for these unexpected things. Like I had a a call with a friend yesterday and we were just sort of talking about how the friendship had failed and we were going to work on it. Was that Zach Braff? It, it wasn't Zach Brav. No, okay. we're not friends. Um, oh, okay. That was the first time we had talked. I love him. I just listened to that episode too. Oh, so. thank you. Yeah, no, we're new friends. Our, okay, our failure yeah. is is down the line. Um, Got it. <laughs> but uh, afterwards, I realized that everybody that I study and appreciate tells you that it's your failures that 
become the great lessons, the great humiliators, and humiliation meaning humblers, meaning surrenderers, the things that break you down, the stuff that just reinforces that what you're already doing is working, so you might as well keep doing it. That is a problem for everybody, but especially men. All we do is go around looking for people that reinforce what we already believe. You need some failures. You need to fall flat on your face. Uh, Otherwise, why would you ever change? So Mm -hmm. when something like this disrupts or when you have a – the reason I brought up the friend call was I realized, I was like, oh, my God, that was a failure. And I got really excited because I spend so much of my time reading and listening to talks about how – God comes to us or, or truth or mystery is revealed to us through failures. And mm-hmm. uh, again, Richard Rohr says, we don't come to God by doing it right. We come to God by doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And, then, and I was like, oh my God, I did it wrong. I did this friendship wrong. And I got really excited. And that's, yeah. that's maybe the most valuable thing if people aren't interested in uh, reading or listening to my book, which is fine. The best thing in it, I'm happy to spoil, is that I figured out the best or one of the most helpful mantras for me is to say, yes, thank you to things. So Mm -hmm. when you're feeling that despair or you're just feel like you're starting to lose your mind, it's really, really powerful and disruptive on a neurological and a spiritual level to say, yes, thank you um, to, to whatever it may be. Yeah, especially the failures. I mean, I love that you bring that up, that you were talking to a friend and you thought your friendship was a failure because that's an opportunity to witness it and then to appreciate the failure so that you can improve it. Or if you still want to have that friendship, you can continue to make it better if you want to go in that direction. I was just saying being humiliated, all of this asks you who's humiliated. You you have to go, (laughs) Kermit was humiliated. Kermit being the stand-in here for the false self. Yeah, And there's nothing wrong with the false self. The false self is great. The false self is what goes out like you, Jess, and starts a podcast. And my false self does a lot of cool, interesting things and enjoys stuff. And it's fine. Uh, But when he's broken, when he's not working, when he's damaged and and he's ashamed and he's embarrassed, you really are forced. It's sort of like rubbing your nose in it. You're forced to draw, as Richard Rohr would say, to draw upon a deeper source, a more Mm -hmm. infinite source. Because if we lean into the Western mythology of like self-reliance and you can do everything on your own and never give up and just, you know, be Captain America and always have one more shield throw in you, you can do it. You're never going to get anywhere. That's why, you know, again, I'm not Catholic, but the Catholics keep Jesus on the cross for a reason. Because the whole point of Christianity is to say, We're going to take failure, like pain, like suffering, like being crucified, and we're going to show that that's truly the way to finding your true self, to finding God, to finding reality, to finding equanimity, to finding a belonging in this very confusing, infinitely expanding universe. It's not by being the Avengers and going like, everybody died, but we brought them back. Yay. It's like <laughs> Wouldn't that be boring? That would be so boring though, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that that is the great thought experiment is like, go ahead and uh, this is Alan Watts. He goes, if you could do anything, what would you do? You're God, right? You can do mm-hmm. anything. He's like, okay, you, you want to have an orgasm for 10 million years? You can do that. Like just a perpetually better and better feeling of ecstasy. How long before that gets old? You're going to you're <laughs> going to make a universe, you're going to make a planet, you're going to make a this is what he says, you're going to make a button that says something happens. Meaning you're going to make a button that when you push it, you don't even know what happens because that's how you learn, that's how God or the mystery of the universe plays and dances and learns about itself and grows and evolves and flows. When you start looking at God as a flow and a relationship rather than a deity that already knows everything, the universe is a dance. It's a play and God is a dance. God is a flow. And it's Mm -hmm. making buttons that says something happens because that's (laughs) like good TV shows and good movies. That's how reality works too. It's like that's where the juice is. Let's have this guy guy get crucified. Exactly. I mean – 
I'm not Christian, um, but I totally, I totally hear what you're saying about that. And you know, that suffering and pain is necessary so that we can appreciate the bliss and the joy and all the other positive emotions that come with it. You know, we're we're on this planet to experience the human experience. You know, we're here to truly embody these vessels and to go with the lows and the highs and everything in between. And and it reminds That's me right. of like one of one of my favorite parts of your book is you talking about what you're talking about now in a, in a different way and an example about how you went to a museum to think about art. And then you had this realization like, wait, we're not supposed to be thinking of art. We're supposed to be experiencing the art. And I actually had this experience when I went to your show at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco last June. You exude such a presence. I didn't feel like I was thinking about your comedy. I wasn't laughing with my mind. I was laughing with every cell in my body. And I was in such a deeply present state filled with awe and filled with joy. And I remember after the show telling you this, and you just gave me this big grin and we hugged and we experienced this holy moment, you know, from, um, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Waking I Life. I remember. They, yeah, they talk about the holy moment. And it's really ironic because now just talking about it, it's no longer a sacred moment because it has that dimension of time to it. It's about that moment in that space. And it's so beautiful. And like we can tap into that now without having to reflect and be like that woman talking about that flower in Brentwood. <laughs> um, you know, it's That's also right. beautiful, this moment right here, but we are still humans on earth in these bodies. So, you know, how do we experience reality as God when we can't all be mystics or gurus like Ram Dass or Richard Rohr or Alan Watts? Yeah. I mean, it really is taking a look at what you think you want. You know, we think we want winning and we think we want ice cream and, you know, we want to be on the beach. I think I make this point in the book. I, I realized I made this point and then I heard Richard Rohr make the exact same point, which was really cool, meaning mm -hmm. there's only so many ideas. But this actually happened to me. I was on a plane and this was, I had a show in Hawaii and we were landing in uh, Maui and we landed 15 minutes early and everybody like clapped because, you know, in their mind, they get 15 more minutes on the beach. <laughs> yeah. And then we ended up ta taxiing for 15 minutes and, and the guy got on and he's like, I'm sorry, there's just no gate open. We're going to be taxiing for another 15 minutes. And the, the guy in the row in front of me, I forget where he was exactly, but he was like, well, what was the point of landing early? Like, he was so mad. Because in his, you know, he was being rational. I mean, we gained time and then we lost time and now we're just breaking even and we're on a plane and we're not on the beach. And I said this, and then I heard Richard Rohr say almost the exact same thing later was, if you're not happy on the plane, you won't be happy on the beach. The way that Richard says it is the way you do anything is the way you do everything. So instead of waiting, like I think a lot of us have been taught to do, waiting until you finally are on the beach eating an ice cream cone to be happy, try and find, like we said, drop your anchor into the present. Try to feel the energy. This is very Eckhart Tolle, but feel the energy, the, the sense of aliveness in your body. Try to look at the world as if you were an alien visiting it, or I used to say this before the quarantine, try to look at the world as if an evil dictator had shut down everything. And today was the first day that you were allowed to do anything. Meaning try to, when you're doing something to actually do it and to actually let your mind be in what you're doing, actually brush your teeth, actually read a book, actually look at the way the light is coming in through your little airplane window catching a little speck of dust and it looks like a universe. It looks like the planets. Mm -hmm. Now I'm that's not beautiful. even asking you to be yeah. intellectually fascinated because that's tiring. Don't think about it. Like it's, I used to do that. I was like, oh, yeah, I can't be like, you know, two cups of coffee, good meal, great nap, Pete that goes around and goes, look at that tree. That's thinking about it. That's like really putting effort into it. It's so much more about taking effort away from thinking about what you're supposed to be doing. This is what's happening. This is what's mm -hmm. happening. Like the flight is delayed. This is what's happening. And if you were in a dream, you know, I actually wrote a lot about lucid dreaming. We ended up taking it out of the book because people don't typically care about dreams. What? I but, love lucid dreaming. Uh, oh man, send me uh, those chapters. <laughs> I'd love to read it. <laughs> uh, I, I agree with you, but you know, it's fine. I, I talk about it plenty. 
if you're if you have a lucid dream and even if you're not like a you know big time lucid dreamer i think everyone at least once in their life has probably realized they were dreaming maybe they haven't but if you do you could be having the most asinine dream that you're just in line at the post office and if you realize you're dreaming you just are fascinated that anything exists. This is what <laughs> I've been t- taught as the contemplative mind. The contemplative mind is completely non-judging, completely non-thinking, meaning you're not making anything into an object. You're not going like, that's a, a letter and that's a post office worker and this is a stranger. You're just looking at it, Richard Rohr calls it panoramic. You're looking at it wide and you're just letting it all in and you're tripping out on the fact that anything exists and that you exist and that you know that you exist. And that is insanity that we don't have to like start writing poetry about it. We don't have to start thinking about it. You can just sort of melt into it and surrender into it and, you know, allow that gift to be given to you instead of trying to be present. Trying to be present is, is really dumb. Remembering to be present (laughs) is good, but like trying to like, really beat yourself up into scoring a hundred out of a hundred and being present. Mm-hmm. Just touch something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because you mentioned, you know, we don't have to write poetry about it, but when you do get into that flow state, when you are writing, does it really come from like a deep surrender or are you still in your mind kind of like letting like your fingers type the words and stuff? Cause I know you're yeah. a heady person and, and you like language and you like reading and, um, yeah. I'm just curious kind of like how that flows through you from a place of surrender or if it does at all. No, I guess I'm sort of uncovering that I do have an agenda sometimes on my podcast to get people who say they don't believe in God to <laughs> find some touchstone of the unknown or the mystery that we've ruined by sort of calling God and turning that God into Zeus. And, and it's easy to not believe in that God. But my my way of getting in is to just talk to creative people about what it feels like when they're creating. And this is the same for uh, musicians when they're writing a song or or jamming or writers, certainly when they're writing, or stand-ups when they're in the pocket performing and losing themselves to the show. Everybody that I respect can usually get in touch with the feeling that they have, that it is completely flowing through them, that they feel like the antenna and they're the radio and the creativity is the song that they're just somehow picking up on the air and it comes through them. There's a great Steve Martin quote that he says, he goes, the, the subconscious writes, the conscious edits. And I think that's really true. Huge. Ooh, I love uh, that. Swath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's almost like Hemingway's like write drunk, edit sober <laughs> in a different way. Oh, I like that. That's exactly the same. That's yeah. That's exactly <laughs> the same. The subconscious writes, the conscious edits. Yeah, And that is definitely my experience is you want to stay as ethereal and dreamy and flowy. I'm not, I'm, you know, fairly disciplined. I'm disciplined enough to finish things. But if I sit down at my keyboard and and I just can tell, it's like knowing that you don't want to make love or something. You're like, it's just, I'm, I'm not, I'm too in my head or I'm distracted or I'm this or I'm that. I don't really force it. And then I, I get up early in the morning and you're like, all right, I got my coffee. I got the computer. And you're just like, nope. And I, I'd leave. I'd, I'd just, you know, fuck off and do something else. And that's fine. Um, <laughs> when I'm, it becomes too mechanical, it's not as fun, right? Yeah. What is this, a job? I, I mean, don't, <laughs> don't let your – I mean, it's fun to turn your passions into a livelihood, but I don't want to turn any of them into jobs. And when they start feeling like jobs, I mean – I will, I, I'm working on a script right now and I, I just, I was working too much on it and it, it was stopped being fun and it stopped being dreamy and it stopped being creative. And I just took a week off. I was like, I am not, do, I, I know everyone listening is probably like, that sounds really nice. Like, uh, I wonder what it's, if you've ever visited earth. I know that's a privileged <laughs> position. But it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people want to be writers, but um, you take that week off and then. Here's a here's a more down to earth example. I mm-hmm. do take a, a Sabbath, uh, like a, it's. I don't care if it's Saturday or Sunday, but one day of the weekend, it's a no phone, no email day, and it's also a no writing day. I'll put out a piece of paper and I'll write down little notes. I don't consider that cheating, 
But then the day after that is usually my best day creating. I think mm. it's. Are you zen- ever tempted to turn your Wi-Fi on and your phone on? Like, do you feel like you're missing out? Do you get that like turmoil that a lot of us feel when we can't of check course. our notifications? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's an unfair system. Uh, the phone, you know, you never know when that email might be coming in, and that's that's what keeps us in a perpetual state of checking our phones or or the tweet or or the the Instagram post might get that comment you were looking for. So like our animals have no defense against the phone. So of course it's, it's, it can be difficult, but Mm -hmm. that is a more practical, uh, I think example taking a week off is, is very unique to maybe what I'm doing, but like most people I know, uh, could be a little bit more deliberate about their downtime and letting it actually be downtime because you work for your fucking phone and it doesn't love you and it doesn't even pay you. It just takes from you and is, you know, tricks your brain into feeling these feelings that are usually reserved for getting a hug or, or having a good conversation. There's this little crystal in our pockets. It's, it's like a weird, you know, it can be wonderful, but it's like a bad spell or a hex or something. And breaking that and remembering that you are, you know, it's very waking life. It's it's very, mm-hmm. you're you're a part of an infinite mystery and don't, you know, don't reduce it to just like, you know, can I get a hundred likes on this photo? Like, you know, unplug. That's a big tip. Every time I hit publish on a new episode of my podcast, I'm filled with such immense gratitude for the ability to co-create at this time in history. Those on this shared path of co-creation are ushering in a new consciousness on this planet. It's a new state of being with a capital B versus the old paradigm of doing. Many of us humans need a manual on how to simply exist. Podcasting is one way to broadcast our light. It's a way to activate our human potential and bring in business. My team and I have created results for our clients like a six-figure deal with Spotify within one year of launch, getting ranked as an Apple new and notable, deals with iHeartRadio and Himalaya, Stitcher has even promoted our podcasts to climb the charts. We're creating success for podcast hosts from all over the world while working smarter, not harder. If you're looking to take the mystery out of podcasting and want to start or scale your podcast into a globally recognized media empire, go to go.artofhumanity.io slash masterclass to learn more about my profitable podcast masterclass. Again, that's go.artofhumanity.io slash masterclass. Now back to the interview. We seem wired similarly. So even when I turn it off, like the wheels are still turning, like I'm a divergent thinker. So when you do go offline for about a week, what exactly do you do? Do you go on hikes? Do you watch movies? Do you read? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me what goes on during this creative process. I'm really curious. Well, I do think it's really important. So in that example, when I took a week off from writing the script, Val and I, it's funny that you mentioned Waking Life because we were watching Richard Linkletter movies. No way. He's like my favorite director. (laughs) He's so good. He's incredible. Yeah. We were watching the before movies and- Before Midnight. Yeah, they're so good. So good. Mm And I said, I was like, I just forgot what a good script sounds like, what a good movie looks like, what a good movie feels like. You get a little too detached. Like suddenly a TV show just starts looking like a script and it's not. It's something completely different from a script. So remembering what good art looks like helps me make other art. And also just like, you know, I've said this before, but you have to live a life worth commenting on. This is why the cliche in the 80s was every comedian had jokes about the airport, because comedians were constantly flying from gig to gig to gig. So of course, they were going to write about their experience. That's why when I'm touring, I tell booking agent, I'm like, at most two weekends a month, because you need to be doing something. Otherwise, I'll be a guy that's just talking about, you know, the Cinnabon at the airport. You need <laughs> to go camping, you need to watch a play, all these things that sound so good, don't they? Because we can't do any of them. But you need right, to just go to a daytime movie or just go to the beach and don't even do it to write a joke about it. And I don't have any jokes about the beach. You go to the beach, you go for a walk, and then maybe I'll write a dumb joke about the saxophone. It doesn't have to be related. But that downtime is so important. I think it's 95% of like our decisions and our choices and our behavior is from the subconscious. It's 95%. That's so, like, a lot. The That's sub- a huge percentage. Wow. 
Oh my God. Well, that's why meditation is so important. You need to have some sort of practice that gives you a chance at reaching your subconscious, at transforming your subconscious. Because most of us are just working on that 5%, the 5% that we know about. But 95 is what's steering the car. Totally. And that's also what I love about Richard Linklater's work is it allows you access to these dialogues that just go on. And it's like almost like you're in their subconscious that they're saying out Mm -hmm. loud. It's like, what they talk about, their stimulating conversations that they share on one of the more recent shows is, I don't know if my listeners have seen this, but I'll put the show, the uh, links to these movies in the show notes before midnight is like one of my favorite movies ever. And the ones that preceded that all came out different times. And it really just shows like the play between, you know, our thoughts and our stories. And, and it's just this beautiful love story between Julie Delpy and uh, Ethan Hawke. And, and just watching these movies makes us feel like our, our humanity more and deeply and more profoundly. Mm-hmm. Because when you can, we all see each other through our own stories and movies help to bring that online and come alive a lot more. So I love that now you're giving me ideas for what movies to binge on. But um, yeah, those yeah, are my favorites. Yeah. I like, do never thought to do that, but it's it's very satisfying to watch one director's work and watching like three of their movies. It's really fun. Oh, yeah. And then he came out, it was a few years ago by now, but Boyhood was his most recent one, I think, unless he had mm-hmm. one after that. Mm-hmm. But that was mm-hmm. phenomenal, too. It took like 12 years of filming to get that movie. Mm-hmm. But I think it really is about that subconscious and knowing kind of how to shut off that monkey mind that we all have. And when we can tap into that, we can reprogram our brains. And much of what your book is about and your podcast is about and who you are, Pete Holmes today, is about deprogramming. And I love that because it's just about chipping away at the soul, like chipping away to get to the soul. And it's removing mm-hmm. like the ego, those co- the constructs that we think are important, like our identity and the labels and our job titles, and really just seeing through all of that bullshit <laughs> to getting mm-hmm. to the truth of who we are at that core. And and it seems like it's a constant process. I mean, I don't know about you, but do you find that you're still peeling back the onion and the layers of the onion to find out who is at the core of Pete Holmes? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's two levels to that question. One is the the psychological level, which I think I, you know, I sort of alluded to at the beginning about their psychological excavation that is always happening. I mean, it's sort of an unsolvable problem. I don't know if you ever just go like, there, I have no more neuroses. Like, you just want to, <laughs> you sort of want to name them. I mean, like, you want to see them so you can give them a name. Sorry to keep quoting Richie, but I love Richie Rohr so much. He's like, that is what he thinks is going on. when, If you look at the Bible, there's like demon possessions and there's the, you want to get the name of the demon. He sort of thinks that's like a metaphor for the idea that like we need to like get a look at our shit and label it. Like I know I have narcissistic tendencies and that just being able to say that and label that is like so powerful to starting to chip it away. Or I know that I'm not a very embodied person. That's been a a new breakthrough for me. And just saying, yeah, well, just saying that is, is like mm-hmm. now Leela and I, that's my daughter, will have like a dance party every day. I'll just put on I love it. Beyonce <laughs> or whatever. We'll move the table and we dance for an hour. And it's just so helpful Catharnic. to feel. Yeah. Yo, my mm-hmm. God, it's I cry when we do it. It's incredible. I lo- Before <laughs> I knew that I was not an embodied person, I couldn't, I couldn't have known to fix that. Do you find that taking a sauna bath would help you feel the same way that you would after dancing? Or is a sauna like, because I know you like to sauna as I do too. So I'm just curious, does a sauna help you get more into your body? I don't know. I've never really thought about it. It, it It certainly like wakes up your body, like, you know, your heart rate and all that. So it might be one of the reasons why I love it. It's very still. I'm trying to get into things where it was a real breakthrough for me where I was like, I never in my life danced. I do dance. I I dance at weddings and I've always enjoyed that. But it's almost always thinking of like, what is the appropriate dance? Like, are people watching me? Because comedians are typically the people that don't dance that sit at a table and make fun of the people that are dancing. That's sort of what we do (laughs) for our, our jobs. Like we don't do things. This is why Christian, uh, sorry, this is why so many comedians are not religious. It's because it's not funny to be the thing. It's funny to be outside of the thing and making fun of the thing. Yeah. Um, So I've danced, but it's always been in a very self-conscious, self-aware sort of way. 
And yeah, yeah. because Valerie dances uh, a lot every day, um, it, we've been working on that and with some other friends of ours. And I'm like, oh, it never occurred to me that you might dance just because it feels good. Like your body just wants to move, like letting it be your body's time. Like, how do you want to move? Like, are the hips a little blocked or the shoulders blocked? How's the neck feel? How do your feet feel? Like letting it steer the car just for a minute instead of, as you know, I like saying meat puppets, instead of you just going like, this is just my meat puppet. It just moves my brain from room to room going like, no, it has its own intelligence. It has its own identity. It has its own needs and, and putting on some music and just going like, you have at it. I'm done thinking about dancing. Let's just dance, like just move. Who cares how it looks? And if you dance with a toddler, you have a wonderful partner who has absolutely no regard for how she's coming off or what she looks like. You can just be free. And that's, I think that's what we're all really after. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And and there's so many different layers to that onion coming off. You know, like you mentioned, it's like the psychological layer of like just coming to terms with the fact that like we will never be fully removed from our neurosis. And, you know, dancing is such a great mm -hmm. example of how we can just dissolve those, you know, any neurosis that we have and, and to just access that deep presence that's here and to embody our human bodies <laughs> without thinking and overthinking why we're in mm -hmm. our bodies. It's the quintessential way to experience presence, I feel like. And I do it through yeah. yoga. There's dancing. There's so many ways to tap into that. It's a way to get out of our heads because who wants to That's be in right. our heads? <laughs> I know. I When I do yoga, I, I sometimes get a little, oh, well, I guess, no, I'm, I do. I get upset that sometimes people are like, it's about nailing it. It's about, I, I, I think you should push yourself and you should try and do the poses or whatever. But to reduce it to just like, that was a good class because I was able to hold that pose when they told me to is not the point. I'm a very liberal child's pose person because the whole point is to just shut off my brain. So if we're doing that, I don't care if the teacher, you know, thinks this is an aerobics class. This is actually like a pretty ancient way of meditating through movement. And that's what I like about dance. Nobody's going to be like, you didn't dance right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. It, you could do whatever you want, really, especially in quarantine. There's no one to look at you. <laughs> that's right. And Unless you're on live video or anything like that, which is tempting nope, to nope. do when we're all bored at home. <laughs> uh, I think Val's maybe snuck a few uh, Instagram videos. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I've been noticing that more. And and I think just because people are realizing like the need to embody to be embodied is so important. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. fun to kind of tap mm -hmm. into that and then show that off and connect with other people on that in that way. It's just a beautiful mm -hmm. thing to really have these moments where, you know, if you are someone that takes yourself seriously, you can just be silly and let loose and look crazy and show yourself if you want and not really care what people think because life is short and we're in this crazy experience all together behind screens. <laughs> so why not embody that that's right. You know, embody that together. <laughs> well, it's how you do anything is how you do everything. How you dance. Mm -hmm. If you're dancing, wondering what people are thinking about you, you, chances are that's how you talk to someone at a dinner party. You know, like if you're stuck in your head, you're stuck in your head. And if you're free, mm -hmm. you're free. And it's yeah. not a flaw that we're, you know, human beings. It's not a flaw that we're in this reality. It's not a flaw that we have goals and, and desires and like, there's a way to play the game. That's why, you know, I'm not a hermit. I'm continuing to produce. I'm continuing to feel human feelings. I'm continuing to have human desires and frustrations and rage and embarrassment and lust and craving and all this stuff. You know, the Christian ethic that I grew up with, the way it was explained to me was what Richie calls willpower Christianity. It's like, if I can just somehow, overcome all of this embarrassing humanity, including your body. Like if I can just get over this embarrassing body, which is a very Plato, Platonic idea, that's not really what spirituality is. It's trying to have some ownership over the three parts, the heart, the body, and the, and the mind, and, and letting them live in, uh, in harmony. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's such a revelation, I think, for people going through this awakening experience is to not see the body as something to be ashamed of. And, you know, you talk about this in so many different experiences and ways throughout your book. One of them, which I found hilarious, was with one of your experiences when you went to Ram Dass's place in Hawaii. 
And for listeners who don't know Baba Ramdas, he used to be Richard Alpert, and he's an American spiritual teacher, psychologist, and author. And you shared the most hilarious experience with your readers in your book about when you had the most human thing ever happen to you, which is being horny when you're mm-hmm. among sacred. Mm-hmm. This is so human. Yeah. It's so real. And you're you're in Ramdas's house. And and I just love that part of your book. And it, it is all part of being human. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why the book is called Comedy, Sex, God. It's the three things that have been most important in my life. And sexuality was such a a shameful thing. And if I'm honest, there's still some of that kicking around in there. That's still part of the psychology that I have to sort of overcome. But I was taught that if you were good, you weren't horny and you didn't uh, masturbate and you certainly didn't have sex. uh, And that meant God liked you. And then I did all this work and I had all this sex. That's sort of in the book too. And I thought that meant that I was over it. I mean, like, look how liberated I am. I've had casual sex. Imagine that. And then Mm -hmm. I go on this retreat trying to be super spiritual. And I got 10 out of 10 horny, just as horny as I've, like, I hadn't been that horny since I was like 12 years old, like really like junior high kid, boy, horny. I I can only speak for boys because I'm a boy. I'm sure (laughs) girls are horny too. But I was just like very, very, yes, very, very distracted. And I was like, if only I could get this horniness out of the way, I could actually have like a spiritual breakthrough. And that was the breakthrough. The breakthrough was like, you need to love all of it. You need to say yes, thank you to all of it. You need to own the idea that that's not an error and you're not good when you're not horny and you're not bad when you are horny, that it's all in the game, that this thing, the quote that I wrote the book to put in was, there's nothing you can do that would make the infinite love that loves you love you more or less. There's only things you can do that makes that love that's holding you together right now. You can only do things that increase or decrease your awareness of that love. And that's sort of the point. Like you're already good. You're Mm -hmm. already in, you're already (laughs) loved and perfect. There's just certain behaviors and certain work that we can do that increase our participation and our experience of that love. And And that's what the mystics are about. Religion, not as a series of rules. It's not about ethics. It's not about belonging or identity. It's about experiencing the mystery flowing through you. And you need to be able to say just this and yes, thank you to even things that you were taught were really horrible. I don't mind spoiling the story. I really wanted to masturbate and I ended up not masturbating, but it was because I found a way to include and and accept that part of me. And that was the teaching. I ended up going Mm -hmm. back I saw Ramdas, I guess this was, I don't I don't know, I have no sense of time, but I went to a second retreat and it was completely different. I had no thought of being horny or, because that, that was sort of dealt with, you know what I mean? Yeah. That that's, mm-hmm. that's not to say I'm completely at peace with my sexuality. I'm just saying I couldn't even really get in touch with the part of me that was so preoccupied with don't, don't jerk off. And and that felt like progress to me. I, I could sort of move on to the next level. Yeah, that is progress. But I think that aha moment came when Baba Ram Dass just accepted you as you were, you know, in, in all of it, in the glory of being human. And that's when you can be like, oh, okay, it's okay. I think the, the shame and the judgment around it is what makes it even worse. So it's just an aha yeah. moment when you realize that acceptance leads to surrender, which leads to love. It's this beautiful dance. That's of right. Acceptance and, yeah. <laughs> And him saying that he loved me unconditionally was wonderful, but it, again, as Richie says, no one can do your homework for you. You have to love yourself. You have to figure out how to, as I say in the book, you have to open the blinds and let the light in. You have to let the love in. And as Leonard Cohen says, those usually come through cracks. So the cracks Mm -hmm. are the suffering. And I had this great suffering, but that's how the light got in. I knew, like someone can say like, love yourself. Like that's, that's all fine. But like, it's going to take some rolling in the mud to really figure out like, okay, you are embarrassed. I was embarrassed that that was my problem, that I was on this retreat and I was horny. That was really one of the biggest problems of it was that I was like, I'm still dealing with this shit. Like, I forget how old I was, but I had to be close to 40. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? I know I'm okay. I know I'm loved. I've had these experiences. I've had like God experiences. 
And here I am going through the same stuff. It was like, yep, some just because you've packed something down really well, uh, mm-hmm. you go on a hermitage, kind of like we're on right now. Those hurts and those wounds, they're still there. And they, they're really insisting that you sort of have tea with them. Like you have to sit down with them and look yeah. them in the eye totally. and forgive yourself and forgive reality. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that have that has helped you on your evolution to get there is your podcast. Before you started a podcast, you were kind of shy, at least about the things that you considered to be failures or faults or shortcomings. And on your podcast that you host, you made it weird, which is freaking hilarious, by the way. You talk about all of these things and you kind of shine the light on shame in a way that is just so refreshing. How has podcasting allowed you to become a better comedian? I mean, I think that's a that's a long answer, I think, is one, it gave me a way to introduce myself to an audience so that when people see me and they've listened to the podcast, I don't have to introduce myself. And that's really valuable. Apart from the like the sort of ego trip of being like, oh, I'm special. They know things about me. It's actually better. We can jump into something deeper or more interesting if I don't have to, which is what you have to for the first 10 years of stand-up, say, hi, I'm Pete. I look like a youth pastor. Uh, (laughs) I'm from Boston. I was religious. I was married. Like All that stuff is out of the way, and you can sort of jump right in. But it also just sort of taught me that no matter how weird you think your thing is, there's tens of thousands of people, if not more, that can relate and have experienced the exact same thing. So I started by like, you know, I just would slowly leak out some of my failures or embarrassments or humiliations or secret shames. I just kind of slowly let them out and see what the response would be. Of course, convinced my model of God was God is going to find out that you uh, shoplifted when you were a teenager, and then he's going to kick you into hell. So of course, I thought the audience would be like that. That was my view of the universe. Hide your darkness, smile, don't swear, uh, don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't drink, whatever it is, look good. And then people will think good of you, and then you will be good. And then the podcast taught me that like real goodness, real strength is vulnerability, Real confidence is a vulnerable confidence. Real power is a weak power. All of these paradoxes, the more you could share your truth, the more you think you're pushing people away, chances are you're probably opening yourself up to actually being loved for who you are. Absolutely. I love that. And it is all about vulnerability and, you know, shedding the idea that, you know, we have to be ashamed of who we are as these humans and in these bodies. And, you know, it's really just a celebration of it. And it's uh, Mm -hmm. powerful stuff and it's deep work. And I commend you for doing it and sharing so openly about it in your book. What's next for you? Yeah. Are you uh, working on anything interesting coming up in the future? Uh, I am. Yeah, And I think you could probably watch it online. I wrote two episodes of The Simpsons that are going to be on this Sunday and then next no Sunday. No way. Okay. So if, yeah. Which so was really fun, fun for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Congrats. Um, Simpsons are rad. Thank you. Cool. It's it's pretty interesting. It's it's a pastor character. We did a two-part episode where we talk a lot about the things. You'd be shocked how much <laughs> of this sort of stuff got into an episode of The Simpsons. So mm-hmm. I was really happy about that. And then, you know... I am, I'm working, I'm trying to sell uh, different projects, but really I'm trying to figure out like what part of this quarantine lifestyle is going to carry over into a post-quarantine lifestyle. How much of the open space and the stillness and the, just the family time, which I always had a lot of, but like, do I want to like do as I always have, just do as much as you can or do you want to be a little bit more deliberate? So like, I'd like to sell these shows and these movies or whatever. And then really what's next for me is trying to figure out how to balance them with life and, and love and friendships and relationships while I'm also trying to, you know, to really answer your question, I'm, I'm trying to sell a TV show. I'd like to do another TV show. And, and I'm also trying to sell a movie. I'm actually trying to do a couple different things, but that, that's the short answer. Oh, great. Okay. I can't wait to hear more or learn more when the time is right. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, everything's nothing until it's something, meaning there's so many people that have to say yes to it before it's even worth mentioning. 
But right now on my end, I'm, that's just a lot of writing. Totally. Well, that's your sweet spot and you're definitely good at it. So thank you for sharing thank your you. beautiful words in your book and the words that are in um, Crashing, which I absolutely love. And um, I'm excited to continue reading your work and listening to your podcast. And I'll link to the Simpsons episode once it comes out in the show notes of this podcast. And Great. yeah, is there anything else you want to share? <laughs> No, I'm so glad we got to do this. I do remember meeting you, and I uh, remember saying that we would do this, and I sincerely meant it, and I'm sorry it took so long, but no uh, here we are. Thank you so much for your time, yeah. Pete Holmes. <laughs> of course. Thank you for having me. You made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is beingishuman. That's B-E-I-N-G-I-S-H-U-M-A-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.